Hey, soccer fans, this is Nick with the Feed the Fire podcast, coming back to you to talk all things Chicago Fire and Major League Soccer. After this weekend, the Fire's playoff hopes are still alive and honestly looking a little bit better than some of the other teams around them in the Eastern Conference. So you're saying there's a chance. In this episode, we are going to recap their 1-0 win over Red Bulls from New York. Specifically, we're going to kind of highlight our center back pairing of Tehran and Olmsberg, and we're going to do a little examination of the kind of striker that Yorgos Kutsias is and what he could be. Then we're going to look ahead to the Fire's midweek matchup against Inter Miami. We know Messi is out, but can the Fire still win this game? I'm also going to kind of get up on my soapbox just for a little bit in the second half of the show, kind of talk about all these messy conspiracy theories that are going on with the league, hiding and covering up injuries and all the rumors that have come out about what is exactly going on with Leo Messi. And then at the end of the show, we will recap the playoff picture in the Eastern and Western conferences, give you a few kind of headlines from around MLS, and then we'll let you enjoy the rest of your day. So for all of that, make sure you stay tuned. Well, Fire fans and Major League Soccer fans, we are back looking at all the action from around the league and from the Chicago Fire standpoint. What do they got to do to get into the playoffs and before we dive into all those details though a couple announcements here for you on some personal stuff here for those of you who've been following along and listening to me whether on this show or on my prior podcast sons of a pitch you guys know i've been following the premier league for probably about the last 10 years or so and i have found myself an everton supporter a fan of the toffees and as of this weekend i am officially saying i am a premier league neutral from here on out just the state of shambles that that club is in from the front office and ownership down to the players and coaching all capped off by a historic loss to luton town their first ever premier league victory comes against the blues comes against everton so with that being said i am now saying i am a premier league neutral and i will just be cheering for some good games If you're out there and you want to try to recruit me to be a fan of your team, feel free. Find me on Twitter at GlassHouseSoccer, or you can email me, GlassHouseSoccer at gmail.com. So that was kind of like the low point of the soccer weekend. But the high point of the soccer weekend for me, coaching my son's u 8 team, my son gets his first goal and his first assist in the same match. I was so thrilled for him. He finally got his goal. He came close so many times last week, he got it this week. All of his friends were just thrilled for him. They're running around. I didn't see his celebration because I was like eyes upward to God, just saying a prayer of thanks. My wife tells me he went with the airplane celebration, comes back running down the field, arms outstretched like the airplane. Classic celebration. Love it. Just, I can't wait to see what he does in his next match. Anyway, from the lows to the highs, now to the fire. Or as I say in the title of the episode, the good, the bad, and the fire. Because the fire is somewhere right in the middle. They're definitely trending bad. But after this win, they really do control their own destiny to get into the playoffs. Now, they ended up with a 1-0 victory at New York Red Bulls. The goal was scored by Yorgos Kutsias, assisted by Jordan Shakiri off of a free kick. 
Now, it was probably Shakiri's best free kick of the season. Let's be honest. He has played so many corners and free kicks to the near post. He has lobbed so many free kicks to the far post, trying to have Chihos head it back across the middle. I'm like, just put it in the mixer. Put it in a spot where one of your guys can go up and make a play on it. And that's exactly what he does on this one. The ball was played from the goalkeeper's left, almost about even with the edge of the 18-yard box. And it gets whipped in low and hard, right about the edge of the six-yard box, right into a group of bodies, which that does two things. Number one, the goalkeeper didn't have the space to come out and control his box, so he had to stay on his line because there's so many people in front of him. The other thing, Red Bull, it looked like they were kind of zonal marking there because you saw Kutsius, and I forget who the other fire player was, kind of make an overlapping run or switch positions, and the Red Bull defenders didn't follow their specific man. They kind of switched off and in doing so gave Kutsius just enough space to get his head on the ball. It was pretty much a free header too. And the other thing, Shakiri whipped it in low and hard. Kutsius jumped and actually had to crouch back down to bring his head back down. So it was to compare it to an NFL phrase. It was like a back shoulder pass. This was a, an outswinging ball, low and hard away from the defense, away from the goalie that only Kutsius could get to. And he does the right thing, gets his head down and directs it right into the far post. And it was a great goal, great celebration for him. I was thrilled. Like I said on Twitter, my son scoring goals. There's some good Greek vibes going on out there. Kutsius gets his goal as well for the fire victory. Now, looking at the statistics of this match, the Chicago Fire actually ended up with 56% possession, according to MLSsoccer.com. We know that Red Bulls are a counter-attacking team, a counter-pressing team. That's just their brand. That's their style, right? But Chicago has not exactly been the most possession-dominant team. So it was interesting to see how Chicago would handle being the away team with some possession. And they actually did okay. They ended up with 500 passes 499 passes, excuse me, and a 79% passing accuracy. So they were trying to push the ball forward. They did a little bit better in trying to advance the attack. It only resulted in five shots, two of which are on goal. So there still is a lot to be asked from the Chicago Fire Squad in the in the final third in those attacking moments. Uh, but the fact is they actually tried to, to move it forward a little bit against this Red Bull team, and they controlled possession for, I would say, the first 60 to 70 minutes. It was really after the Kutsia's goal that the fire went a little bit more defensive. You saw Chris Brady pick up the yellow card for wasting time uh, that that the Red Bulls really took over and, and were a dominant force in the game. And, and by the way, for you USMNT fans out there, John Tolkien looks like he, he could hang. I'd like to see him get some call-ups and see him work in with that full squad a little bit more. He might be able to hang. He had some great play against the Chicago Fire. Again, we know what kind of standard the Chicago Fire present as an opponent, but still, you got to rise to that level. And it looked like Token had himself a pretty good game. Continuing on with our statistical analysis, the, the Fire had 10 crosses and three offside. Now, a lot of people were very, very critical about the strikers, about Shabilko and Kutsias spending too much of their time offside. And it's very true that they are. So offside calls to me, if you are pushing the defense, if you're stretching the defense, if you're trying to run in behind and you're getting called for offside, then that's fine to me because that is tactical. That is you're trying to take advantage of those moments. Obviously with VAR, if it's used correctly, again, if it's used correctly, you're going to get called offside 
more often than not, or the correct call is going to be made more often than not. Uh, but you still got to make that happen. In these cases, though, in these in, in this fire game here, you saw Kutsis and Shabilko starting plays offside, or when they when the fire would turn the ball over, they would not jog to get back onside and be ready for when the fire were back on offense. And there were some quick times uh, that Red Bull turned the ball over again, and Shabilko was just hanging on offside. I do remember one play distinctly in the second half when Shabilko was in the game. He just was walking around, and the Chicago Fire midfield tried to play him quickly after a turnover, and he just put his hand up and was like, I'm not going for the ball. Put both his hands up. I'm not doing it. Don't call me offside. I'm not, I got my head down. I'm not looking at the play. He was so out of it. He was so lazy to be getting back. But hey, if you were getting paid a million bucks a season to just sit around and do nothing, well, you'd probably be a little lazy too. I digress. The fact is that Kutsius and Shabilko, for whatever it's worth for Shabilko to try anymore, have to do a much better job of getting back into an onside position uh, and be ready for their teammates. Make a run. If you're if you're in an offside position, get back and get ready for that second run. This is something that I've always said about young players, like Akutsius, who's 19. The dude should have energy for days. He should be able to play a long stretch of minutes, back-to-back-to-back games. He should be able to hustle a little bit more and get back in those, in those moments. Looking at some of the defensive stats, Fire ended up winning the duels battle 56 to 46, which definitely was not the way the Red Bulls wanted to play. They wanted to win those duels and create counterattacks. Fire won uh, nine tackles to Red Bull seven. Brady came up with two saves. The Fire also had 30 clearances to the Red Bull seven. That is a lot of desperate defending in those last 10, 15 minutes of the game. Only five fouls committed by the Fire. That to me is outrageous. Red Bull committed 20 fouls, Fire committed Five. The fire did pick up four yellow cards. However, the biggest one was the Red Bulls one red card. And that is what did them in the free kick coming off of that red card. So that's kind of the statistical analysis. But again, we talked about the fires offense, not really up to snuff, but they actually ended up with 1.5 expected goals on five shots. So the few shots they had were actually of a decent quality, you know, about 0.3 or 30% chance on each one. Well, here's the funny thing. Kutsius's goal, I think, was given him somewhere in the 50s, maybe, or so. High 50% chance to go in. Um, and, you know, those headers usually have a higher level of degree of difficulty. So they aren't weighted as strongly. Uh, but Jerdan Shakiri's complete whiff, miss of the goal there, that was given a 70% chance of going in. So his opportunity was about half of the Chicago Fire's expected goals. And if the Fire do want to make the playoffs, and God forbid the Fire actually want to win a playoff game or a wild card game this year, an opportunity like that, that is going to be half of your scoring chances from the percentages, you have to convert that. Not to mention the fact that you're the international star, that you're the, the designated player, that you're the second highest play, paid player in the league. Forget highest played on the team. You've got to bury that. Anyway, that's enough about the Red Bull game. The fire did enough to get the win. Uh, also, I wanted to ask, what? where was Frank Lopas's uh, magnet board with all the little guys he moves around like it's a freaking chess game or a little tavoli, if you know the Greek? Did that not get on the flight? Did that get confiscated by TSA? I don't know. What I really wanted to talk about this game were some of the players here, specifically Carlos Turan, Wyatt Olmsberg. 
they were the starting center back pair, and I was interested to see how they would play together. Now, they did start uh, last week together uh, against the Revs, and we saw two goals given up there. But, you know, when you have a new center back pairing, you're going to expect them to give up some chances. So this week, I really wanted to put a little bit more stock to see how they would play. Center back pairing is very much relied on communication, partnership, comfort level, developing a rapport, right? It's like a quarterback and a receiver. You know when your receiver is going to make that cut for and then hit them in stride. You know as a basketball player, and if you're the point guard, you know when your guy's going to go in for a pass or a defensive side. You know when that switch is going to, that help is going to come. Just like in soccer here, when you have a center back pairing, you need to know where your teammate is going to be. You need to know what their strengths are so that you can uh, play off of that. You need to know what their weaknesses are so that you can support that and encounter for that. And that's why typically we see a center back pairing in, in soccer. Traditionally, you usually have one big physical shutdown center back, and then you have another not as big, but definitely a big, strong center back who's usually one who can cover a little bit more ground, who's a little bit better in his distribution and passing, someone who can step up and cut off that initial attacker, allowing your, your second center back to kind of hang back a little bit and be an outlet. Or you also need a guy who can take on attacking players one-on-one -on -one, as opposed to just being a big physical body and shoving them off the ball, defending set pieces, defending you know in your lines, uh, when you're able to set your defense. So in looking at this, this, this typical center back pairing, it's almost as if Olmsberg and Tehran are kind of filling the same role, the big, strong, physical center back. And they need a guy like Chihos who can cover a little bit more ground, who can be a little bit better on the distribution, who can push forward and maybe support the attack a little bit, who is, well, Chihos hasn't really demonstrated his one-on-one -on -one defending yet, that has been sorely lacking across the entire fire roster this season. But it seems, again, like Tehran and Olmsberg are built in that same mold. So what did that show for the center back pairing? They did enough against Red Bull. They did enough to really minimize the Red Bull attacking threat. Like we said, 18 shots by Red Bulls. And I'm sorry, I say Red Bull. I say Red Bulls. One and the same to me. If you look at, at the team in, in Germany and Switzerland, it's Red Bull Leipzig. Or if you look at the team in uh, in New York, it's New York Red Bulls. I interchange them. Uh, my apologies to, to the fans of the red side of New York. But please, if anyone wants to correct me, email me, glasshousesoccer at gmail.com. Um, but again, only three shots on goal and seven blocked shots. So half of uh, the shots that that Red Bulls got off were saved or were blocked. So they were playing in good position. So looking at these two, are they, they were good enough in this game. They have been pretty good MLS players. I think, I think Olmsberg last season was highly underrated. I think he was extremely underrated. I mean, nationally last season, underrated this season by his own coaching staff. And I get why you want to play Tehran. He is your player of the future, whether he's going to be your starting center back for the next three, four years, or whether he's going to be your next big transfer piece. He is a big, physical, strong, athletic, Colombian center back, and he is only 23 years old. If he can get his temper under control, if he can work on a little bit of his distribution 
and passing. And if he can be that force where opposing attackers try to dribble around him or dribble away from him instead of trying to take him on one-on-one and beat him, I think that he would go for probably a seven, $8 million transfer fee, if not higher after a really, really good season with the fire. And again, as a center back at 23 years old, you are still approaching your prime. Whereas maybe if you're a 23 year old striker, you better be there. Olmsberg on the flip side is 28 years old. So he is right in the middle of what should be his prime as a center back. And for comparison's sake, Rafa Chijos, 33 years old. So, I, I really do like the three center backs that the Chicago Fire have. And, of course, the ability to slip Pineda in there as a, as a spot sub and starter if needed can't be understated. But what I would love to see is for next season, let's make it official that Tehran and Chihos are your starting center backs and that Wyatt Olmsberg is your backup center back. I want to see Chihos be a little bit more conservative with his legs and his minutes and maybe not be pushing up and being an offensive attacker as much. Hopefully our offense gets better and we don't have to rely on him to do that. I would like him to actually stay back and send Tehran forward so that he can get on the end of some of these tall crosses as big of a guy as he is. I would love to see Tehran, like I said, become a smarter player, a little bit more technically savvy player and have some better distribution all attainable goals that he can make between his being 23 and 24 years old and just getting that temper under control. If he has a good coach, a solid coach, a stable coach, I think he can do it. He was starting to do it under Ezra, but then we saw things unravel with, with how Ezra was playing. And then when we saw Ezra starting to get frustrated and yelling at officials and things, we also saw it happen with Tehran. And now that he doesn't have a real stable coaching structure, it's it's been up to Rafa Chihos to try and calm him down. And when you see your own player, like a, like a Jordan Shkiri, screaming at the referee and screaming at his own players, that is unsettling for a young center back like Tehran as well. So I hope he can learn to, to calm himself down, to make himself a much better and more valuable asset for the team on the pitch and potentially in the transfer market. But I would love to see him and Chihos starting next year with Olmsberg backing them up as needed. That would be my, my ideal. Also, we've seen Tehran has not been able to push through a full season yet, whether it be to injury or to fatigue. So he is really going to need to get his fitness up in the off season. So he can play a full MLS plus leagues cup plus whatever else gets thrown in their schedule. The other player that I wanted to talk about in this match, Yorgos Kutsias, the young Greek striker. And the, I had a co- good conversation with some people on Twitter as to what kind of striker is Yorgos Kutsias. Typically a striker falls into one of, I'll say four different categories. He's either like a slasher or a sprinter where he's just going to outrun guys or he's going to make those diagonal runs, slashing runs behind defenders and get played onto through balls and then one or two touch finishes. There's also the target striker, kind of like a Kai Kamara, where he is a big presence in the box. He is going to get on the end of uh, aerial crosses, head balls, tall crosses, right? He's going to be uh, getting direct passes in from the wings for a one or two touch kind of finish. He is, he's going to be getting those long balls from Shakiri from the midfield, who's just going to take it, turn, and even though if nobody's pressuring Shakiri, he's going to just bomb the ball forward instead of 
dribbling to take the space and then drawing defenders out and then creating a numbers mismatch. But you know what? That's basic soccer. Why would we expect Jared and Shakir to do that? Sorry, this was a conversation about strikers. So is Kutsias that slasher sprinter? I don't think he's got the speed for it yet. They tried putting him out on the wing. Didn't really work for him there for those few games. I don't think he's got the speed. I also don't think he has the the aerial ability, despite the goal he just scored. He doesn't have that large physical presence that one of those target strikers have. Is he a poacher? Is he kind of the fox in the box? Is he going to be the Wondolowski kind of guy jumping on rebounds or just out hustling and creating things from nothing? Now, we saw him do that a little bit in that first game against Montreal, where he was just kind of powering his way through the box, creating a goal and uh, a second assist. So that could be part of his game. But if you had to label him, at this point, I think he's going to develop into a holdup striker if he gets a little bit stronger. Again, he's only 19, maybe 20, maybe he'll be 20 in the offseason. So he needs to really grow into his body, put on some muscle mass, and really study the game, study the angles, study where defenders are going to play him and how he's going to have to body up or post up on some of these defenders to allow the Chicago Fire's wingers to get in and support the attack. And I think that could be a very, very good role for him when we see Chris Mueller coming back, if we see Gutierrez developing into a really good central midfielder, able to overlap and work one-twos off of him, if we, if Marin Haile Selassie sticks around and for next season and can continue to improve on his play from this season, which given the fact that he came right over from Switzerland and just jumped right into this league with some modest success, it's possible. And you never know, maybe something happens with Jairo Torres and he finally figures it out. I'm not going to count on that. But the fact is the Chicago Fire have really built themselves some decent wingers. At least that's the way they wanted to go under Ezra Hendrickson. We'll see what the new coach and front office wants to do. But if they want to stick with a winger-heavy approach, Kutsius as a hold-up striker could pay dividends. At best right now, he is hustling and helping create. And like I said, if he can get stronger and smarter, we could see that uh, for him. What I really think they need to do with Kutsius for next season is what they should have been doing with him this season, what they tried to do with him this season, but for someone trying to get Kamara a goal-scoring record and Shibuko being an absolute bust – what they needed to do is have their regular starting striker, someone that he can learn from, someone that he can train with, someone that he can observe and, and watch in film studies or live on the pitch. Someone then that can play 60, 70 minutes and then bring in a Kai Kamara to finish off a game if you're chasing a goal or bring in a Kutsias to finish off a game if you're up a goal or two and you need him to hold up the ball, kill off a little bit of the clock, right? And then you can allow Kutsias to really get some starters experience and get some good minutes, build up a fitness to a full MLS season by starting in the cup competitions, by getting some spot starts, things of that nature. That's what I would have loved to see. A regular starting striker playing the bulk of the minutes. Kai and Kutsias coming in off the bench. Kutsias being the starter in cup competitions or spot starting is needed. I think that was the plan with Shabilko, Kamara, and Kutsias, but... Obviously, Shibilko didn't work out. They've been trying to push Kamara to get this goal-scoring record, so he's been starting playing a lot more minutes than I think he should have. Kutsius was struggling at times. Maybe Klopas thought sitting him for spells would be more beneficial for the young player. But the fact of the matter is they had the right plan. They just didn't have the right players or the right execution to do it. He can still It can still work next season, 
And hopefully then, if it works next season, he develops by age 22, he could be your regular everyday starter in MLS. And if he has some good experience with the Greek youth national teams, you never know. He, he could grow into a star MLS striker or the fire could get a nice little transfer fee for him. That is what I would love to see out of our center back pairing. That is what I would love to see out of the striker of our future here, Yorgos Kutsias. So that is kind of everything I wanted to talk about, my observations from this game. What I am going to do now is I'm going to turn it over to our featured guest, John Donovan, for his thoughts on all things Chicago Fire, New York Red Bulls. On the YouTube side, we're just going to pause for a few minutes. We're going to splice in John's audio on the podcast. So make sure you are following along on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, I'll turn it over to you, John. Nick, John Donovan talking about the Chicago Fire and the MLS. Nick, we got a win. one nothing against the Red Bulls. And uh, we're probably lucky we got that one nothing. It was kind of a... A funny play in the second half. It was off a red card that uh, a player, a New York player, got a, got thrown out. And New York had, had a really tough time adapting to the man down. They had a lot of breakaways that uh, one in particular, Gutierrez and Shakiri, and they had it wide open and they, they missed the net on a Shakiri shot. So um, it takes every team a bit of time to adjust to being a man down. I wonder sometimes about some of these MLS coaches when you've got a yellow card going into the second half, especially a defender, I'm making a change at halftime. I don't want to put my team at risk of losing a game because I made a decision to leave a guy in. I've never understood that in pro soccer. I think it's it's if you've got the, the bench with a guy that can equal the play with less cards, it's smart to make, to pull him out. But the game itself, Kutsia started up top. Torres was on the left, and Herbers was on the right, and Shakiri underneath. And I tell you, you know, it, it. The game started out two minutes in, and Shakiri's arguing, and he argued the whole game. I don't think, you know, in business, in anything in life, positive attitudes create positive players. And when you've got your star player griping and groaning and yelling at refs and really it does not stay it's not good for your team and that's what Shakiri is I if I had played with him I, I wouldn't have enjoyed it at all yeah he's got skill he's got a great left foot but he's garbage I mean it's constant garbage out of his mouth it just would drive me nuts our other DP Torres I wrote down at the 16th minute I didn't even know he was on the squad on the field I mean, talking about two busts for DPs, um, we're just not getting it out of either one. Dubia is our third DP. It's little known. They brought him over from Switzerland. He played. He had a decent yellow card. I agreed with the yellow card. He he had been beaten, and he pulled the guy down. But of the two guys, I mean, Kutsias played well. Olmsberg played really well. Why he hasn't been starting or the first defender off the bench is beyond me. The guy's smart. You can see him directing the the players back there, the offside line. He really has got the game going. And Dean, Dean has the speed. He's got the knowledge of the game. I know Suquet is from sort of a premier type league over in France, but Dean, yeah, he comes from the UFL, 
but he's got speed, he's tough, he's not emotional, he just plays the game of soccer. And I, I think that, you know, if I'm the GM next year, I'm taking a hard look at him staying around and maybe Suquet uh, going back to France or whatever he does. But I think we really have, um, with Tehran, Olmsburg, Dean, we've got a really good defense back there. Now, Navarro, he played pretty well this time. I got to go with it. He wasn't uh, uh, falling down all the time, uh, getting those cheap fouls. But um, I'd love to see us change that left side. I don't think the kid A save us from from Mexico is is uh, much of a help. Now, Brady, uh, guys, if you haven't seen this guy play, I mean, it's worth the, the effort to turn on the TV. I know we had Gaga last year, and he, he, he's off into the world of Chelsea, but Brady um, really is a good goalie. He's, he's fast. He's smart. He directs the defense. You can't believe this kid's 18, 19 years old. He really has a game about him. When I remember when they drafted him, and I thought, you know, he was like 15 years old when they signed him, and I, I just didn't see what anybody saw on him. But man, the kid can play. Um, Herber's out to the right. You know, I don't know why Klopas is not starting Salasi out there. Herber's is a midfielder. He's not an all game. He's not a guy that goes on for the whole game. He's starting to get an attitude out there too. So, you know, I. I don't know. And as I said, Torres was on the, the left side. I wrote down on my pad as I was watching. I didn't even know he was on the field. So um, that's that's it. But what's what's so exciting about this end of the season, Nick, right now, and I'm, I'm kind of looking at who's playing who next week or this coming week. You know, it's pretty obvious we're going to be in front of a probably a sold-out house with Mr. Messi. And I think Messi will be playing this week. I really think he'll be on the floor against the Fire. The Fire have, what, three games left, and they've got to win out. I mean, it's it, they're not in the playoffs yet. D.C. has to go down to, I believe D.C. is playing Houston. Um, and Montreal, I believe, is playing Austin. So, you know, they've got tough games to go. All This, this whole season is coming down to these last couple of games you know, do I want the fire to make the playoffs? In a way, yes, I do. But in a way, no, I don't. We have to get rid of our GM, and we've got a clean house on Klopas and his his Greek body there. I mean, we we need a St. Louis move, kind of, to get this team back and the city back with us. So I'm rooting for the for the guys. I'm rooting for guys like Dean and Olmsberg and Tehran and Kutsias to to go ahead and get into the playoffs. But I'm really confused. I know this team needs a complete washdown. I mean, no Klopas, no ideas, no nothing from RGM. I mean, it's been, think of the DPs and some of the disasters. We shouldn't be fighting for the, every year fighting for the last playoff spot. We should be, we're, a, we're an original team. We should be up there with, with all the good squads. You know, and I think we're just short management. We're short that that um, good, solid, predictable manager that that can uh, that you know that he's putting the best team on the on the field. We've got a guy that's been fired right now four times because his team, or three times, I'm sorry, because his team has been bad. And how do we expect anything different? So it really was a good game. I mean, Shakiri came through with a. 
a direct kick off of uh, Kutsias, which was nice. Um, the fire, you know, they took advantage of a couple of breakaways that they couldn't put away. But at the end of the game, uh, you know, the Red Bulls almost had one. Maya put one right off the upper corner. So we came away. We got a couple of points. We're still in the in the competition. But uh, Miami game is going to be really something to see. So take care, Nick. Thanks for the opportunity to do this. And, Mike, I hope you're listening. Take care. John, thank you so much, as always, for contributing, for joining, and for just having all the conversations you and I do on and off the air. It's been a lot of fun having you on the show and just talking all things soccer. And I want to remind everyone, John Donovan's segment is brought to you by our sponsor, Skira Icelandic Spring Water. Icelandic for clear, Skira water comes from a spring in a government-protected nature preserve in Iceland with naturally low mineral content. This isn't your average water, clearly pun intended. It's one of the best. Go out and get yourself a bottle or three of Skira Icelandic Spring Water at your local 7-Eleven. Now looking ahead to the Fires midweek game, Wednesday, October 4th at Soldier Field, 7-30, hosting the Herons, Inter-Miami, and a win, here's your trivia, Chicago Fire fans, a win would get the Chicago Fire to 40 points for only the third time in the last 10 years. One of those was that 2017 playoff season. And I think the other one uh, was as, was as recent as 2019, even though they didn't make the playoffs. Now the storyline around this game has been Messi's availability. That's what's being pushed by everyone. Everything's got to be about Messi now. Right. But to me, if you really want to look at the game and and kind of figure out the way the game is going to go, the storyline is the health of the entire Miami squad. Messi's out. Alba's probably out. Martino, Tata Martino, their coach has been quoted saying, you know, we're losing players when at this point of the season, we should be getting them recovered and ready for this playoff push. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's the sentiment that he put out there. And it all seems like it's just too much for Inter Miami to handle right now. We also remember that during the summer transfer window, they didn't just sign Messi. They signed Messi, Jordi Alba, Sergio Busquets, and three young South American DPs. So they really did revamp the roster. So the roster, they they were essentially a new team coming into the second half of this MLS season. And without their arguably two best players now, Messi and Alba, they are just like any other MLS team that's been struggling to figure out where their offense is going to come from. Luckily, they've had some great goalkeeping uh, by Drake Callender. And for their sake, I hope it continues. But for the Chicago Fire's sake, this could be, this is an excellent opportunity that they get to face off against an inner Miami team struggling with injuries and struggling with offense. We saw, you know, in, in Chicago Fire circles, we remember watching a CF2 defeat inter Miami when Ben Kramashi was playing on, on CF or on inner Miami's second squad. Now he's starting and alongside Messi, he's scoring goals. He's looking great. Robert Taylor's pitching in all of a sudden Messi and Alba are out and they're back to being below average major league soccer players. They did put in really good shifts against New York city, but it's going to be a lot more of that hustle play than it is that talent uh, coming out of those two young players. Now, addition, the one concern I do have with the Chicago Fire, yeah, if you, it's it's going to be an ugly game. It's not going to look pretty from an aesthetical standpoint. The Fire haven't really looked pretty most of their season, and Miami, without their 
their summer signing stars is probably not going to be as pretty either. Also, we saw how slow, like literally just slow, Shakiri, Shabilko, Ferbers, Dumbia were in the Chicago Fire's less matchup against Red Bulls. Hopefully that's what Klopas considered a rotated squad, and we do get to see Gutierrez, Haile Selassie, Pineda back in the starting lineup, and the Fire can play a little quicker. But the one thing I, I worry about is if those young players for Miami really get on their game, if they play to their their talent and abilities, I, they may be able to just out-talent the Chicago Fire. Those one or two moments of individual brilliance where they take on a Chicago Fire defender, get a good shot off. Maybe Chris Brady can't come up with six or seven saves this game, and he only ends up with three or four, and the Fire end up losing two to one, three to two, something along those lines. That's what worries me about this game is just it gets down. It, it, it's an ugly game. And those one-on-one matchups, the Chicago Fire aren't able to win with some of the young talent on Miami. However, that being said, I'm going to go with the draw in this game. We saw the Fire are still struggling on offense, regardless of who is in as striker, as starting in midfield, whether it's Shakiri playing, whether it's Gutierrez playing, or whether it's both of them on the pitch. The Fire can't figure out how to generate goal-scoring opportunities even when they're at home. Now, in this case, I still think Miami's defense is in a solid enough position, but they don't have the offensive creativity. I think it's going to be a 1-1 draw. Keeping the Fire's hopes alive coming down to decision day, right? If you want to look at the odds, the Fire uh, are minus 100 at home. The draw is plus 280, and Miami is plus 210 uh, on on, on their odds coming on the road here. And that is according to FanDuel. So one last topic I want to get on here, messy injury conspiracy theory, speaking of Inter-Miami. So the theory that's been out there is that the league hid Messi's injury to sell tickets and, and Apple season passes, right? And all along, Tata Martino and Inter-Miami have been saying, oh, Messi's just fatigued. He's tired. He's just going to sit out some games. He didn't travel against Atlanta. Stuff like that. That that's all it is. He he's gonna play. He's gonna play. He could play against your team in the very next game, right? Buy your tickets now. That's the conspiracy. So what came out on social media, leaked news, leaked from a source, per sources, is that Leo Messi actually had a torn hamstring. It has come out since then. Tata Martino has addressed it. Nope, that is not the case. Actually, Leo Messi has some irritation from scar tissue of an old injury in his leg muscles. He's day-to-day. He could play at any moment, right? Well, that's not exactly consistent. Irritation from scar tissue, personally, I wouldn't consider that to be fatigue or overuse. Maybe that's how Inter-Miami and the league are considering it. But the fact that they came out real quick and said, no, he's not injured, this is actually what it is, rather than just saying, like, no, that's not true. I don't know who told you that. We've been saying he's tired and fatigued the whole time. Makes me makes me a little suspicious that they were not as forthcoming with this information as they could have been or as they should have been. The other thing, though, just to counterpoint these, these crazy theories that, oh, they're, they're hiding his injuries. To me, that's extremely short-sighted. It would do even more damage to the reputation of the league. You, you're, ruin, you're, you're hedging the future of Major League Soccer from a, a fan standpoint and from 
other stars and international players wanting to come here. You're hedging that future for the short-term ticket sales and cash uh, with Apple TV to just to hide whatever Messi's injuries is. I, I don't think that's the case. A lot of people are saying too, well, they they had to do this sort of thing because that way they can't get sued for ticket refunds because Messi's not playing. Okay, no one's ever going to do that. Or even if they do sue, and there probably will be lawsuits against Major League Soccer and these franchise clubs that, oh, well, I, I bought a ticket to see Messi at a hyperinflated price. I bought season tickets at a hyperinflated price solely because of this. You marketed Messi. Those cases are going to get thrown out so quickly. There is no guarantee that players play. Like in any sport, in any sport. And that's why the NBA is actually changing the rules to force teams to play their stars, not to piss off the fans. But even then, that is the league trying to accommodate fans. That's that's the NBA cash grab. That is not anything that the MLS is trying to do. I think the MLS is on sound legal standing, not having done a lot of the research, but just my general knowledge of sports law and contract law, being an attorney of a decade plus, I don't think anyone is going to be able to definitively say the only reason I bought this ticket is because of Messi, because that is the only reason it was marketed to me. Fair enough. Also, the other thing I want to put out there, uh, to me, the biggest issue with all of this is just the lack of transparency from the league. We've seen MLS get burned with a lack of transparency from contract details. We're going back some years now to financials, to not disclosing investigations around Bruce Arena. More recent story. I think the league needs to put in place a player availability policy, an injury report, something like the NFL does to definitively say. Maybe you don't have to go into the detail of, oh, he has a dislocated pinky finger. If you want to do something like hockey and just say lower body injury, upper body injury, head injury, precautionary, illness, fit personal family, whatever, keep it vague if you want to keep it vague. But I don't think it is that difficult for this league to be able to have an availability policy to, to put out for fans to know who's going to be out there. And additionally, you want to get in on some of that gambling money, MLS, you're going to have to start putting this out there. Maybe you don't want to get involved with gambling. And I know that gambling is, is quite the vice. And there is clubs and fan groups and, and soccer organizations around the world who are pushing to get gambling sponsors off of jerseys and out of clubs. And I completely understand that. And to a large part, I support it. Gambling can be an, an addicting thing that ruins people. Absolutely. But if you want to get involved with it to the extent like the NBA, the NFL have been, Major League Baseball has been, if you want to bring in that additional cash flow, these are the sort of things that you're going to have to be putting out there so people can make informed decisions, both as odds makers and as fans. So that's another reason for it. The league, I, I, again, I don't think it's that difficult for teams to be putting this in place, for the league to mandate this and to monitor it and to put it in place. Counterpoints, maybe not counterpoints, but wrinkles here, right? When is this going to be a dis disclosure? Is it going to have to be every single Wednesday during the course of a season? Is it going to have to be, uh, say, a chosen day like a Wednesday only when there's a game that weekend, a league game? Do you have to put these things out for – Champions Cup games, for League's Cup games, for friendlies. The league is going to have to work the details out, but there's plenty. There are plenty of examples around the world in soccer and in other sports to do it. 
the only thing that I think is going to be difficult is the congestion. If you've got a team that's going to play Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday, or Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, when do you have to put out your injury report? 48 hours prior to your game or as soon as practical, but no later than 12 hours prior to kickoff? I don't know. The league is going to have to work that out. But again, these are details that will be worked out, maybe not smoothly the first couple iterations of the policy, but the policy needs to get in place. And that that is my overall theme here. There needs to be an injury or an availability policy put in place. Now, I've already talked for almost 40 minutes, so I'm just going to real quickly hammer out what's going on in the playoff picture here. Western Conference, you've got St. Louis, who has clinched the number one seed, and no other team has clinched a spot. It's fairly likely that Salt Lake, Seattle, and LAFC, who are in spots two through four, will be making the playoffs. And it's more than likely Houston, Vancouver, and Portland in the five, six, and seven spot will also make the playoffs. But man, who knows from eight through 12, eight through 13, if you want to bring in uh, Austin and the Galaxy here on 35 points. San Jose's in the eight spot, first wild card, 42 points. Dallas, 41 points, second wild card, and then down to uh, Kansas City, Minnesota, Austin, and L.A., all within seven points with three games left. Then we have, all right, going to the Eastern Conference, scrolling here. In the Eastern Conference, conversely, you have your top seven teams have clinched. Your playoff teams have clinched. Cincinnati has clinched the Supporters' Shield. Congratulations to them to go from Wooden Spoon to Supporter Shield in two seasons. What a feat. Gives even the worst Fire fan a little bit of hope, right? Uh, but Cincinnati's clinched. Orlando, New England, Philly are your other top four teams. Then you've got Columbus, Atlanta, and Nashville as the bottom half of the playoffs. They're all clinched. They are in. Those are your seven teams that are making the playoffs. The only question in the Eastern Conference is the Chicago Fire and the wild card spot. You have New York and Montreal in 8th and ninth on 38 and 37 points. Then you've got D.C. and Chicago in 10th and 11th on 37 points. So with a win, Chicago could leap all those clubs. And then they have to look forward to New York City on Saturday. So if they can beat Miami or draw Miami and then get that all-important win against New York City, the Fire have a really good shot of slipping into a wild card spot, whether it's in the eight or ninth spot. To me, that is wild. The very definition of a wild card and a wild finish and decision day drama. So all eyes will be keyed in on those Eastern Conference teams fighting for the wild card spot. So with that, soccer fans, MLS fans, Chicago Fire fans, thanks for tuning in to episode 55 of the Feed the Fire podcast. The good, the bad the fire make sure you're following along and supporting wherever you get your podcast liking subscribing on youtube quick shout out to my boy happy fifth birthday alexander love you buddy and with that fire fans we'll see you for the next episode have a great night let's go fire